evening with a few folks to uh, the walk through Bethlehem, or walk to Bethlehem, I guess, uh, at Morris Mill Road, and um, it was it was enjoyable and certainly can kind of give you a, uh, some indication of what it may have been like a little bit uh, for Mary and Joseph during this time uh, of year, and of course we know that the Lord Jesus Christ was probably not born in December, more than likely he was born in the spring, early summertime area uh, as far as the date. But we use this time of year to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for years I enjoyed putting up um, the manger scene and the stable and the the cows and all the the sheep and all the different things that were there and the the little little shepherds were there and and all that. And uh, the truth is it wasn't until I was much older that I realized the Bible was very descriptive about a little bit of a different uh, type of a Christmas than what we oftentimes celebrate. Lord willing, here a week or two weeks from today, I'll be uh, teaching that and sharing that from Scripture uh, on the Tower of the Flock. If you get an opportunity to research a little bit of that before then, uh, we'll be able to uh, make some good headway in that message. But uh, it's interesting to me that God's Word is amazing and it certainly tells us things that oftentimes we gloss over or we miss or we misunderstand or we take out of context. And yet it's true. The Bible is true and it's sure. And when we come to it, we, uh, we certainly can have a strong foundation on some things. I'm thankful for God's plan of redemption. It's perfect. It's perfect. There's nothing missing from it. And, boy, I'll tell you, as I study and read some of this stuff, I get so excited at how, how God went about doing everything. Uh, it's, it's a wonder that God does the things that He does, but when He does it the way that He does it, it causes us to sit up and be like, what an amazing God we serve. What an almighty and powerful God that we serve, all-knowing God. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. And uh, we sang that song, Away in a Manger, an old crib for a bed, and talks about the cattle are lowing, and I don't know how scriptural that song is, but we do know that a Savior came a little over 2,000 years ago, and He was laid in a manger. And He didn't come as the king, and He came as the sacrifice, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He will come as king one day, amen, and I'm looking forward to that too. But the first time He came, He came as a lamb. And He came for the purpose of causing you and I to uh, know that we can have a home in heaven for all of eternity. He paid our sin debt for us. What an amazing Savior we have. And we thank the Lord for that. Haggai chapter number 2. Let me give a little bit of background and keep your Bibles handy. We're going to end up in Nehemiah chapter 13. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah now for several months. And uh, we're on chapter 13. We're going to finish it up, Lord willing, next Sunday. But uh, we're going to preach a message from Nehemiah 13 this morning as well. And um, we wanted to give some background to it. When uh, God chose Abraham and said uh, he was going to make out of him a great nation, we had uh, the story then of Isaac and uh, Jacob and Esau and how God blessed Jacob. And then we remember how Jacob uh, has uh, oftentimes was an imperfect fellow. He was known as a trickster and... Uh, I, I'll say I love I love the character of Jacob in Scripture. It gives me encouragement because I see how imperfect Jacob was, and yet God loved him so much and made a mighty nation out of him. And um, uh, the night that 
uh, before, I think it was the night before that he was to meet Esau, he wrestled with God. I think that was the timing of it. And he wrestled with God, uh, and uh, he would not let him go. And remember, the morning was breaking, and he would not let him go. And God reached over and touched his thigh and put it out of socket. Uh, I believe that Jacob, for the rest of his life, had that as a reminder of his time. And it was during this time that God changed his name. He said, you're not going to be known as Jacob anymore. He said, you're going to be known as Israel. And uh, God made Israel his chosen people. They served the Lord for a number of years, and as they uh, were put into bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh, uh, they were there for uh, several hundred years. God led them out of the nation of, Israel, uh, of Egypt. And, uh, did I say bondage under Israel? Bondage under Egypt. And he led them, the nation of Israel out of Egypt and through a miraculous set of events. And boy, I love reading about that and how God worked in Pharaoh's life. And uh, he gets them out into the wilderness, and the people are disgruntled, and there's a lot of chaos and things going on. And so God establishes his law with the nation of Israel. He gives them the law at Mount Sinai. And one of the things that he uh, gave very clear directions on was that they were to build a tabernacle. And their encampment was supposed to be uh, set a certain way where they would come to a place and they would put the tabernacle up and then they would have three tribes on each side of uh, the uh, tabernacle surrounding it and that God was to be uh, in, in inhabiting this tabernacle uh, with His presence and He wanted to be in the midst of His people. And uh, so for the, a long time there was a tabernacle that was made by man's hands and and they used that for their worship and for their sacrifices. Uh, in the time of David, David had such a desire to make God a permanent house and uh, to build a temple for him and not have to have the, the uh, tabernacle that had been used in the, the wilderness. And God told him, he said, you're a man of war, and so I'm not going to allow you to, to uh, build that, but you can get everything ready for it. And so David did. And Solomon actually built it. This this temple, if you take time to read about Solomon's temple, I uh, was reading a little bit in First Kings uh, at the time of dedication and how uh, all the things that they did in the, getting this thing ready for the temple that Solomon built. And what a beautiful, beautiful account there was. And this temple was, was very ornate. I mean, it was magnificent. I, I read the description of it in Scripture, and the truth is I don't know that we can fully picture or understand it uh, the the uh, what the Bible refers to here in Haggai chapter two as the glory of Solomon's temple. This thing was magnificent, and uh, God's presence came and filled the holy of holies, and uh, He resided there in the temple. and uh, And then the Israelites they departed from God, and God brought judgment upon them. And the enemies of Israel came, and they defeated the city, and they burned the city, they burned the temple, and this beautiful, beautiful temple that Solomon had built was destroyed. Nehemiah comes on the scene after a number of years and begins restoring the walls. And he begins the work of restoring the temple. And as we get to Haggai chapter number 2, uh, in fact, in Haggai chapter number 1, it's been a number of years since uh, Nehemiah, probably about 10 or 12 years now, since Nehemiah began the work on the temple. But all the work stopped after he left. He went back to, uh, uh, to serve under Artaxerxes. And uh, all the work on the temple stopped, and everybody went to their own houses and started working on their own houses. And Haggai uh, was told by the Lord to go to the nation of Israel in chapter 1 and say, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
Uh, you dwell in your sealed houses, and my house lies waste. And he, he tells them about this. And so the nation of Israel uh, picks up the, the torch again, and they begin to work on this temple, this, this second temple now. Not Solomon's, but now a rebuilding of the temple. And uh, as we get into chapter 2, there is some criticism that the temple is not, it's not as beautiful as Solomon's temple. It's not... It's not going to have near the glory. We're going to read here in, in verse number uh, verse number nine. Let's back up. We're going to back up just a little bit. Um, to uh, let's go to verse number. Oh, let's see here. Go to verse number two. Let's back up a little bit, and we'll get a running start into it here. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to the son of Joshua, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Speaking of the time of Solomon's temple. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? In other words, they're getting some criticism. They're saying, Look, you guys are doing a great job, but it's not anything like Solomon's temple was. And they're doing the best they can, and they're doing their, their, their very best, putting their hearts into it. And all they're doing is getting criticized for this and says it's... And if you compare it to the glory of the first temple, it says nothing. And so they're being criticized. I'm sure discouragement is setting in because God tries to encourage them here. In verse number 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son, uh, 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 son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. And by the way, any time God's involved in the work, it's a great work. Amen. I'm thankful that he gets involved in this thing. And in verse number 5, it says, According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I, notice this, I will fill this house with what? Glory. This is the second one now. Saith the Lord of hosts. Where did the glory come from in the second house? Did it come from the, the golden tapestries? Did it come from all the ornate trimmings and fixtures and the, the, the fine linens and all of the uh, articles of the, of the temple? Did it come from... Is that what, where the glory of this temple lay? No. God was the one that filled it with glory. And notice he says this in verse number 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word and how it teaches and instructs us in some things that, to be real honest, our, our human minds would probably never think of. It certainly is beyond what we can comprehend sometimes. And yet you've chosen through your wisdom to, to teach us these things. Lord, we are so grateful for them. And I pray that you would help us as we look into your word today to learn this truth and learn it well. And that we would take heed to it and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. And that we would be more of what we ought to be for you. So bless, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will now, understanding a little bit of this background, take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter number 13. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter number 13. Nehemiah has spent a lot of time rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra has come on the scene, has preached, 
And they've spent a great deal of time, a great deal of effort getting the people of God to repent and to turn back to God, to, re- to, to purify themselves and to separate themselves from the mixed peoples and the things that were uh, a worldly influence. They, they put them out away from them and said, we're going to uh, re- recommit ourselves, rededicate ourselves, re- uh, reestablish our side of the covenant which God made with us so many years ago that we're going to make Him our God. We're going to follow Him. And so the people have got a purpose and a mind for all of this. And uh, so we get to chapter number 13, and the Bible says this in verse number 4, And before this, Eliashib, the high priest, having oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Now, if you've not been with us in Sunday school there were some men that when Nehemiah got there to rebuild the wall, they opposed the work of God. There was Sanballat, there was Gershom, and this man here named Tobiah. Uh, This man was certainly not a friend of Israel. He certainly was not into uh, God's work being accomplished. This man was not one of the ones that chose by faith to follow God, the God of the Israelites. But he was one of these mixed people. He was one of these... Uh, folks that the, in the nation of Israel was to be separated from. In fact, he was um, a, 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 an Ammonite, I believe, if I remember correct, and uh, he was not to have a part with the nation of Israel. Now, notice what the high priest, the man that was in charge of the temple of God, notice what he did here, verse number 4. It says that he was allied unto Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a great chamber, well, I don't know how great of a great chamber it needs to be for the Bible to call it a great chamber, but I think this thing was something of magnificence. I think there was some there was some wonderment in the chamber that was built for Tobiah. I think it was built for his pleasure and, and for his appetites. He had prepared for him a great chamber where aforetime they laid the meat offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. Well, if this place that was given to Tobiah used to hold all these things, then where are all these things? Where are the things that were supposed to be brought in that were holy and sanctified unto the Lord and were to be given to the Levites for the purpose of living? The truth is the people were forsaking them. Verse number 6, But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. After certain days obtained I leave of the king. And so uh, Nehemiah had now for several years been back uh, serving under the king. He was the king's cupbearer, Artaxerxes' cupbearer. He was back there. And by the way, uh, you know, I I think it would be well said uh, oftentimes, I remember as a kid, that whenever I was uh, going to camp and I had a steady diet of preaching all week long, and there were things that, of this world that I was separated from for a week's time. It seemed like when I'd come home from that, uh, I'd be on fire for God. I'd be excited about the things of God because there had been a separation. There had been a steady diet. There had been men in leadership that led me that direction. And I, I, was, I was close to the Lord. But as soon as I got out from under that leadership, when as soon as I got out from that accountability... I began to drift, and I, my, the, the, the fire in my heart, the zeal of my heart began to wane and grow cold. I began to lose some of that excitement. 
Nehemiah left and went back to the king, and I believe a lot of the excitement, a lot of the revival spirit that these people had experienced under his leadership, when he went back to the king, it began to, to wane. They began to allow some things to slip, if you will. They began to ally themselves with some of the mixed people that they had already separated from. Why? Because they didn't have that steady diet. I shared in Sunday school this morning, I was reading a book on revival this week, and it had a, the thought that uh, the sign of a true revival is time. How, long, how much time does this decision for the Lord last? How much time does this excitement and zeal and fervency for the Lord last? If it's man-driven, if it's emotion-driven, it lasts but for a short period of time. It's like the firework or the flashbang that goes off, and it's great heat and great intensity, but it's lasting very, very short time. When God does a transforming work by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is fruit in that life that remains. It's known as the fruit of the Spirit, something that produces in us things that are pleasing to God. Here, Nehemiah leaves. He goes back to the king, and and because of this, some of the things that, that, that were committed to begin to slip again. He says in verse number 7, And I came to Jerusalem, so after this period of time that he was back with Artaxerxes, he comes back to Jerusalem to visit. He says, And I came to Jerusalem and understood the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts, notice this, in the courts of the house of God. Here's a man that defied God, defied the work of God, was an enemy of God's people, and he was being allowed to live in the house of God. You say, Brother Greg, why is that such a big deal? Because isn't that not what we see happening rampantly in our civilization today? The enemies of God, the, the people of God, that, uh, the folks that are out here attacking God and are anti-God, that are joining forces with some of the spiritual leaders of our day, and they're mixing in the world, and they're bringing the world into the house of God. Oh my, God delivers from those types of things. The Bible says, Then I commanded... Notice this. Let's go to verse 8. And it grieved me sore. By the way, that ought to be the response when we see something like this. And it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. I don't think Nehemiah was a weak-kneed little preacher boy that's telling you how to feel good. He comes in there, he throws out this stuff and says, Listen, Tobiah, you're out of here, bud. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with meat offering and frankincense. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. I wonder how he perceived that. Probably because the room that was supposed to hold all of it didn't have anything in it. He said, I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? If you're in the habit of underlining your Bible, you ought to underline that question. Why is the house of God forsaken? There are three things that Nehemiah did, and I want you to understand something here. As the nation of Israel did not have strong spiritual leadership in place because Nehemiah had gone back to the king. They began to drift. I'm thankful when people say, well, I need to go talk to pastor about this. 
And I'm glad to help. I'm always glad to help. But can I tell you this? It thrills my heart even more when I see somebody that says, you know, Pastor, I had a problem. I went to God's Word. And God's Word taught me some things and helped me through this problem. Because pastors are not going to always be here. I may not always be here in this church. I don't know how much longer I've got to live. I'm 51 years old. I'm not near as old as Miss Kim, who had a birthday yesterday. And I'm much younger than she is. But you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be. I really don't. And I don't mean to be silly. And please don't miss the point here. I don't know how much time I'm going to be here. But if your dependence of living the victorious Christian life is dependent on getting fed from your pastor every week, then you're looking to, be, you're looking to the wrong source for victory in the Christian life. I'm thankful that I can help edify, but by the way, that's what every one of us are supposed to be doing. Not just a pastor. We're to edify one another. We're to build up one another. We're to help one another. But if that's the source we're looking to to get the victory in the Christian life, we're looking to the wrong source. The writer of Hebrews says we're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's how we run the race with patience. That's how we lay aside the weight and sin which is so easily possessed. That's how we have a victorious Christian life. If you're looking to Keith Heights Baptist Church, you're looking in the wrong place. If you say, boy, I'll tell you, my family is growing spiritually, and it's because of this church and because of that pastor. I'm telling you, it's not because of this church and because of that pastor. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're dependent upon this, you're going to be sadly, sadly disappointed one of these days. Because I'll be real frank with you. This pastor is not a perfect pastor. And this church is not a perfect church. And there will come a time where there will be disappointment in your life if you're looking in this direction. Can I point you to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Can I point you to Him as your source of victorious Christian living? They, they didn't have this leadership in place. Their excitement, their zeal, their... Can I put it this way? Their revival spirit was intact as long as Nehemiah was there. But as soon as Nehemiah left, it began to grow cold. Would to God that we would have revival spirit based upon our walk with God. The time that we spend with Him, that we would come to His Word and and allow it to thrill our hearts, to walk in His Spirit and be sensitive to His leading in our life. And let that stir our hearts and the embers of our hearts. Have great joy in the Christian life. As their revival spirit began to grow cold, and I think you and I can all relate to this, there have been periods in our times where we've been red hot and on fire for God and excited about the things of God. And there have been times we've been cold and distant and just felt like we weren't getting much. These people were no different. They find themselves in this predicament. It wasn't very long, and I don't know how long it was. The Bible doesn't tell us after Nehemiah left, but the high priest the decision-maker for the house of God, began to bring in an enemy of God and an enemy of someone from the world, this man named Tobiah. They brought him in, and they didn't just bring him in as a guest to spend time with him. They didn't just dabble with him. They didn't just have an association with him. They let him set up residence right there in the middle of their temple. By the way, Psalm 1, I think, teaches us a valuable lesson in this, in verse number 1. The Christian, when he begins to dabble in, in the things of the world, we look at it and we say, well, that's harmless. It's only affected me. It's just a little bit. And I'm not, doing, I'm not really doing this thing. I'm just dabbling over here. 
But left unchecked, it starts to take a greater hold on us, and we begin to stand in the way of sinners. We begin to look at it and be approving of what they're doing. And before long, if we do not do things to correct that path, we begin to sit down right in the seat of the scornful, and we begin to participate, and we don't care who sees us. We have high-handed sins against God, rebellion sins against God. You say, how did I end up getting to this place, Pastor? It all started with walking in the counsel of the ungodly. It all started with dabbling in the sin. It all started when we looked at the world and we said, there's something that they have that I enjoy that I, that's appealing to me, and, and I want to have a part in that. And so we start bringing that in. And left unchecked, they'll go from visiting our house occasionally to residing right in the middle of it. By the way, when Nehemiah finds this out, it grieves him greatly. I, th- I thank the Lord that He gives us the Holy Spirit of God. That when we get into this type of a lifestyle, He brings conviction. You ever, you ever done something and as you're doing it, you're thinking, man, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't right. I, I don't feel right doing this. This isn't right. You ever felt that way? That's the Holy Spirit doing something in your life. Notice there's three things that Nehemiah does here, and I want you to look at them and we're going to be done. As we begin to get down into verse number uh, 9, the Bible says, Then I commanded... Let's back up in verse number 8, I'm sorry. And it grieved me sore, therefore... Notice this. I, what, what, what are the next two words here? I cast forth... Right. I, I cast forth. I'll give them to you. I already read them there. I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can I tell you this? The first step that Nehemiah did to get things back where they needed to be is he said, I'm going to take all this stuff that the world had that's now residing in me, I'm going to get it, and I'm just going to throw it away. I'm going to get it out. I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to kick it out. I'm going to do whatever i got to. I'm going to get a shovel and shovel it out. I remember as a kid when people would preach on certain things. I remember uh, years ago they used to preach on rock music. And uh, young people would uh, bring in their tapes and their CDs and they'd say, you know, I've made a decision not to listen to rock music anymore because it oftentimes has a theme that causes my heart to not be for the things of the Lord. And even the music itself draws my flesh into some things. And so I'm going to not listen to rock music anymore. By the way, uh, you can't mix rock music and Christian music together and expect it to, to cause your soul to grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. And then we'd bring in our tapes and our CDs and we'd, we'd break them. And sometimes hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise. He said, Pastor, why were you doing that? Because we were taking the things of the world and we were throwing them out. We were saying, this has had a hold on me. It's, it's residing in me. By the way, understand this, that while this can certainly be applied to our churches today, and I think ought to be applied to a lot of our churches today, there's a bunch of churches that need to come in and start throwing out a lot of worldliness. And there's a lot of churches that ought to come in here and start doing some of these things that Nehemiah's doing. But can I help you with something today? As much as our churches need to do this, you and I are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You and I are the house of God. And in order for our churches to get to the place where they need to be, the members of the church need to be in the place where they need to be. Our, our temple, the temple of the Holy Ghost, this body, I may need to come to my heart and say, boy... I sure let some of that get in my heart. I enjoyed it. I started with it just a little bit, looking over my shoulder, making sure nobody saw. I enjoyed it a little bit. And because I kept enjoying it, boy, it started coming in. And now I enjoy it, and I really don't care who sees it. 
Not only do I enjoy it, I participate in it now. It's actually gotten a hold on me. I like what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter number 12. He said, laying aside the weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. You know, sin, when it first starts, is, is, we think, boy, it's harmless. And Satan always does that to us, doesn't he? He makes us think, oh, that's just a small thing. You don't have to worry about it. And the next thing you know, it's got a hold on us. It has easily, without effort, beset us. Why? Because we didn't deal with it to begin with. The first time Tobiah came to visit on the door, they should have put a, a sign on the door and kept the door bolted said, Not welcome. Amen. By the way, on our heart's door, when the world comes knocking and brings that temptation, that thing that appeals to us, we ought to close it up tight and say, not welcome. Not a part of my life. There's a presence inside of me that brings glory to Himself. And I'm not going to quench that for anything. I'm not going to cause the glory of God to depart from my life simply because I want to have some of the world in it. Verse number 8, the Bible says, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. And I tell you this, there's some things that we look at and we say, oh, I have to have this. It's a necessity. And I tell you this, if it's of the world, it's not a necessity. It needs to be cast out. Well, I just don't know. You know I, I know I can, I can love God in my heart even though I still have these things in my life. No, no. I'm not doubting the fact that you love God, but I am doubting the fact that you can have those things in your life and it not bother you. Because when I read in my Bible, I find that the Holy Spirit deals with us on these things. For a Christian to say, well, God knows my heart. I, I know I don't live like I should, and, and that's fine. I know I'm thankful He forgives, and I'm just going to keep living that way because you know I really enjoy these things, and He understands. I enjoy them, and He knows I love Him. No, no, I don't think you can do both. You either love God and it bothers you, and you start trying to get those things out of your life. You start trying to kick them out. Or you love the things of the world, and in that case, we don't love God. And by the way, that's not what Brother Greg said. That's what the Bible said. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's what the Bible says. If any man love not uh, love uh, the Bible, uh, love, love God, and and does not keep His commandments. The Bible says He's a liar and the truth is not in Him. That's not what Brother Greg says. That's what the Bible says. If you get hurt feelings, you get mad at me today and walk out of here, you're, you're, you're getting mad at the wrong person. Go out here, look up into heaven and say, God, I'm mad at you today. And see how that goes. Because He's the one that said it. And folks, I'm not trying to be offensive, but we have far too long in the society that we live in coddled worldliness. Not only in our churches, but in our own lives. He kicks it out, throws it out, takes a bulldozer and bulldozer out, whatever it takes. Because notice he says this in verse number 9. Then I commanded, notice this, and I cleansed the chambers. Kick it out, you better do some cleaning. Well, how do I clean, Brother Greg? Psalm 119, verse number 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. 
We start taking heed to God's Word. That's how we cleanse it. We start reading it, and the Bible says it, and it doesn't matter whether I agree with it or not, it's still settled and I'm going to obey it. How do I cleanse this room? By the way, notice this, verse number 9. I like this. The Bible says, Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers more than one. By the way, notice this. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with meat offering and frankincense. I want you to understand this. They didn't just take one section of the temple that, was, that he was in, in the chamber that he was involved in. They took all of the areas. They said, we're going to make sure we cleanse all of it. I don't know what all he's defiled in there. I'm going to make sure it's all clean. Oftentimes, we spoke about this in Sunday school a little bit this morning. We pick and choose what we're going to get rid of. The things that we can, the things that we can say, you know, that doesn't have much hold on me. I can get rid of that in my life. But those things that have a hold on us, we have a hard time letting those go, don't we? Cleanse it all. Cleanse it all. They threw out the junk. They threw out the world. They threw out the things that were contaminating this temple. The Bible says, secondly, they gave the command and they went through and they cleaned them all. They cleansed them all. They purged them. How did they purge them? By the Word of God. Our temple is cleansed by taking heed to this book. Not just reading it. Anybody can read it and check off a check on their Bible reading schedule. We're talking about taking heed to it. When we read it, and it says you're supposed to do this, we say, yes, I am. I'm going to start doing that. When we read it, and it says you're not supposed to be doing this, that's right. I'm not going to do that anymore. Not just reading it, taking heed to it. Why? Because we're cleansing the rooms. We're cleansing the chambers. We're not just kicking the world out. We're making sure that on the inside there's clean. In fact, the psalmist wrote that, didn't he? He said, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Over and over and over, the psalmist speaks of the cleansing effect that God's Word in a walk with Him has on our lives. We need to take and throw out the things of the world. We need to make sure that we cleanse the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. There ought to be some diligence given. There ought to be some effort given. There ought to be some purpose that we grit our teeth and we say, I'm not going to let the world infiltrate. I'm going to make sure that I live in a way that is cleansed and pure and right. By the way, we're living in a day and age where even many of God's people, people who name the name of Christ, who say, I am saved and I've trusted Christ as my Savior, many live a life that is unholy and unpure. Well, Brother Greg, you've got to understand the world we live in today. You know, the Bible tells us that the world is waxing worse and worse. But it also tells me that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. I don't care how much the world changes, this doesn't. And I don't change my morals by how far I am from the world. I change my morals by how in line they are with God's Word. It's the only thing unmovable. Nehemiah looks at this and he sees 
the enemy of God. Living. Living in the temple. He takes him and throws him and all his household goods out. He says, I want you to go through and everywhere he's been, I want you to clean it. Cleanse it. Purify it. Make sure it's clean. Make sure it's it's undefiled. By the way, both those need to take place before the third one can happen. Notice what takes place here now. Verse number 9, Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers thither. Now notice this. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offerings, offering and the frankincense. They began to bring back into the heart, into the temple, into God's residence, the things that were supposed to be there to begin with. They started off by bringing in the, the, the things that the, the Levites were supposed to live on, the, the tithes of the, of the grains and the fruits and the meats. Why? Because the Levites were starving to death. They had to go to their own houses. Can I tell you this? If you and I are going to keep our hearts in this state, we, we, we get the things of the world out. We cleanse the heart. Can I tell you this? In order for us to keep it, we've got to make sure that our soul can feast, that it can eat, that it can be nourished. How do I do that? By feasting on God's Word. By feasting on God's Word. Look with me in verse number 9. They brought again the vessels of the house of God. Notice this. With the meat offering. I'm thankful they brought the meat offering back in. I'm thankful the Levites aren't starving to death. I've seen people that have been so excited about the things of God. They get saved. Do you remember that day you got saved? It was wonderful. I was reading this week in First Kings when they built that first temple and they dedicated it. Boy, what an amazing thing. <clears throat> the parades, the ceremonies, the prayers, the incense, all of the things that happened during the day of dedication. The joy that was there. And yet we find ourselves when we get to Haggai chapter 2 that people are sitting around saying, you guys are wasting your time. This temple doesn't have any glory to it. How did we get from the magnificent glory of God's temple to men sitting there looking at us saying, God's temple doesn't have any glory? I'm the temple. The day I got saved, the Holy Spirit of God came and filled this temple. And let me tell you something, it was full of glory. Not because Greg Boer was in it, but because Christ was in it. And there was some joy there, and there was some zeal there, and there was some excitement there. And there wasn't a person in this world that had any revival that made any more excitement and zeal in the Christian life than the day I got saved. But I find myself sometimes at the Haggai chapter 2 level. Where is the glory of this one? The glory of this temple is waned. I'm in need of kicking the world out. And I'm in need of cleansing and I am in need of God to refill this vessel once again. I'm not saying we lose the Holy Spirit, but we quench Him and we grieve Him. There's a reason why in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea, the believers at Laodicea, that Jesus writes this to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That's not dealing with salvation. I know we like to use that verse for salvation. That's dealing with relationship with Christ. You say, how do you know? Because he says he'll come in with us and sup with us. That's dealing with fellowship with God. What's happened? The glory of God has left this temple. It needs to be reissued again. We need to have some cleansing. We need to have the world taken out of the life. And then we need to we can't stop there. Then we've got to bring in the things that are supposed to be there. Notice he says, verse number nine. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offerings and the frankincense. Frankincense is an amazing thing. It's one of the gifts the wise men brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. The frankincense, when it was offered by the high priest, was in recognition of God's presence being there with them. It's a sweet odor. It's something that... that was a sweetness of God's presence. Can I encourage you in this? We live in a day where there needs to be a great, stirring, Holy Spirit-given, filled revival among God's people. Because a lot of us have some Tobias living right here. And it happens so easily. And we make compromises, and he gets a foothold in there before we even recognize it oftentimes. And we need some Nehemiahs to come along and be grieved at it. Say, I'm going to kick them out. I'm going to get rid of all of it, not just some of it. I'm going to cleanse all the rooms again, and I'm going to bring back into the temple God's presence and God's glory. I'm going to make sure that the things that are supposed to be there are there. A lot of things we can learn from the book of Nehemiah. I wonder how often in our lives we have Tobias living there and we don't even realize it. We've grown so accustomed accustomed to it, it doesn't even bother us anymore. Maybe there was a time that it bothered us. Maybe there was a time that the Holy Spirit used to prick our hearts about it, but because it was left undealt with, it took up residence. We prepared chambers for it. We brought it right on in the front door. We said, not only do I want you to visit, I've made a place for you to come stay. Oh, how often that happens in our lives. How often we need to come to God's Word and say, Lord, I need to get those things settled. I'm going to throw them out. I'm going to cleanse it. And I'm going to invite you back in. Not for salvation, but for my fellowship and my relationship with you. Oh, that we would learn these things. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. I pray, Lord, that you will take the message this morning and use it in our hearts and our lives. May your Holy Spirit guide and direct. And, uh, Father, we've done our best today. The truth is, None of this, of what was preached this morning, is anything that is of my wisdom or things that I could say to, to change anybody's heart or life. And I understand that and I recognize that. But Lord, Your Holy Spirit can do a work and Your Word can do a work. And we ask that You would do that today. 
Lord, there is such a need today, such a need today in the midst of our, our own lives, in the midst of our churches. There is such a need for people to come to this recognition and realize what needs to be done. That the, that the stirring and the revived work of Your life living in us can be restored once again. That the joy of our salvation can be there again. That there would be a time where we have a cleansing. Our hearts and our minds are made pure once again. Bless the time that we spend here together. I pray that You will bless the invitation and Lord use it as You would see fit. May Your Holy Spirit do His work. And Lord, we ask that You would be glorified in all that we've said and done here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed. And we'll have Miss...